seated. Your Bible to John 6. We'll look at verses 1 through 15 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin for you. And if you need a Bible, there are some on the table in the back by the uh, children's uh, coloring supplies and reading materials. Um, <clears throat> so, John 6. After, after lunch on uh, weekday at our house, uh, when, when the other kids are off at school, if our four-year-old, Jubilee, is tired, <clears throat> she will ask to watch a cooking show. And uh, then she'll curl up with a blanket and fall asleep. And one time, I was watching a show with her. There, there was a show where um, the chef, this guy, he traveled to different venues uh, around North America, I think all over North America, and um, uh, to see what people were doing in these venues, but to offer help also uh, catering large meals. These would all be really large meals. And uh, this fellow in, uh, in this particular episode visited a large... <clears throat> inner city church. I think it was in Ontario. And, um, and this, this city church had a uh, soup kitchen. It's a Presbyterian church, big stone building where a couple times a week, hundreds of people would come in, uh, homely, uh, homely, homeless, hungry people um, would come to their soup kitchen and they would feed them. And the, the volunteers were all being interviewed during this show. And they all talked about how good it feels to serve the community. It feels so good to give back to the community. You really should, people should do more of this because it feels so good to do something right for other people. <clears throat> Not so much talking about actually helping other people, but almost in self-centered ways. <laughs> like, this feels really great to me to do this kind of thing. And the chef remarked when he was being interviewed, it's just like the parable of the loaves and fishes. It's like, what? what? The, the parable? of the loaves and fishes. I think I started to explain to Jubilee how the loaves and fishes were, there's a real historical event, a real miracle that Jesus performed, not a parable, not just a story that, uh, that he told, but she was already asleep by that point. <clears throat> so, um, but it's common to view this account that we're going to look at, the, the, the story of Jesus um, multiplying bread and fish to feed a multitude. It's uh, it's common to view it as a nice story that's told to motivate you to share your lunch with others or even to undertake some massive endeavor like opening community soup kitchens so you can feed a lot of people who are hungry. Um, you know, you hear, God can take what little you have and he can multiply it to help others in surprising ways, but it's about much more than that. It's about much more than that. It also seems common, actually, just to take away the fact that Jesus is, uh, is really powerful. I mean, look at what he can do. This is just a sampling of one of the kinds of things that he can do. And that he, he can and he does provide for your basic needs, sometimes miraculously. You didn't know where that next meal was going to come from, and yet you never went hungry. Um, but it's about much more than that, too. <clears throat> it is sort of a, a living parable don't hear me saying that it's not a real event. It's a real historical event that's recorded for us in the gospel, but it teaches something of much greater significance. It teaches something of larger significance about Jesus and about God and about his kingdom. That's why it's called a sign. That's why John, when he writes his gospel, talks about uh, so much of what Jesus did in terms of these are signs. These are signs that 
say something bigger than just the event itself. It points beyond Jesus' ability just to provide enough um, food, a big enough meal to feed an army. It's, it's more than that. It reveals that Jesus Christ himself, that he himself is more than enough for everyone. He's more than enough for everyone to fill to overflowing the emptiness of the human heart, and it teaches how we, his disciples, can help others uh, to find their satisfaction in him, to go to him for the, the bread that they need, so to speak. So <clears throat> that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let me pray, then we'll read uh, from John's Gospel. <clears throat> Father, um, here your word is before us, or rather we are here before your word, and we pray that you would meet us now, that you would satisfy hungry hearts with Jesus Christ himself, with the vision that we see of him, with his life as it's shared with us in the gospel. We pray that you would help us to understand your word and to be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) So after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was uh, was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a little boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. John's a very theological writer, the the writer of this gospel, John the Apostle, uh, very theological writer. In our culture, um, this is just a little bit of an introductory, like this is how we should learn to read John's gospel, maybe even all the gospels, but in our culture, we think that investigative reporters should have written the gospels as strict historical biographies, just the facts, minimal interpretation of the events, so as not to corrupt the transmission of the truth. Um, But John sees the historical events of Jesus' life 
Um, he sees them as imbued with deep truths. He sees cosmic, spiritual, scriptural themes tying together in the life of Christ, in the history of the life, in the, in the actual events, the actions, the things that, that he does. He sees those things because Jesus taught him to see those things. Jesus taught him to look at my life and see deeper, more significant spiritual truths than just the things that I'm doing. Um, And after this uh, this episode here, and after uh, what we'll talk about next week, uh, Jesus comes back and he teaches what all of this means in very theological terms. Right? He teaches what this event, this episode, means and what it says about him. The bulk of chapter 6 is the record of his interactive teaching on this event. Sort of like a, a long sermon with question and answer time. <laughs> um, and in fact, I seriously consider just reading that to you. Am I supposed to come up with something substantially different than Jesus' own interpretation of this event? Probably not. Hopefully not. Um, but John writes in ways that hint at these connections, these larger connections, these deeper spiritual truths that we're supposed to see in the life of Jesus Christ that Jesus taught us to see. In the book of Revelation, he does more than just hint. John wrote this gospel. He wrote his three letters, the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote Revelation, the big book that closes up the uh, end of the scriptures, the one that um, sort of funny that it's called Revelation because when you read it, you're scratching your head wondering what that meant. Uh, isn't it supposed to reveal something? I'm not sure what just happened. But, um, but he writes Revelation in a way that it does more than hint at these connections. He explicitly pulls back the curtain there on the visible realities of this world to show the divine, heavenly realities that are at work behind the scenes of history. So we shouldn't be surprised that John is trying to help us as he's recording this event, as it, as it took place, He's trying to help us to see, he's pointing out details that, that help us to see the bigger theological picture, uh, what this says about Jesus and, and about God. And, uh, we don't have to worry then. We don't have to worry that we're allegorizing or over-spiritualizing the text, though, of course, we should be careful to read it as it was intended, um, as a book of signs, as a book of real signs, things that really happen that really point to deeper truths about who God is uh, revealed in the life of Jesus Christ. And these signs are meant to help us to understand and believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of God, and that by uh, believing in him, we may have life in his name. That's a quote from John's purpose statement uh, later in his gospel in chapter 20. So so let's get into it. Uh, Sometime after Jesus healed the disabled man, which we looked at a few weeks ago in the, the last several weeks, the sermon that grew out of that encounter as Jesus was uh, talking with his opposition, the religious authorities. Sometime after that, um, where he had revealed God's humility to these people, um, he went from Jerusalem, he went north, not just to Galilee, not just to the normal kind of Jewish part of the region, but to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, right? Very close to, if not actually in, Gentile country. Gentile country. Places where predominantly not Jews are living there. So John brings non-Jews. He brings Gentiles. uh, The whole world. 
He brings these people to the reader's mind in a few different ways here. He mentions that the Sea of Galilee is also called the Sea of Tiberias, as it had at, at that time, very recently, uh, like within the last couple decades, become uh, known, especially by the Gentiles, as this is the Sea of Tiberias. So if you remember at the time Israel was under Roman occupation, and the Roman client king, if you will, that he's the, the representative of the Roman government who lives and rules over Israel in particular. He was Herod Antipas, who just a decade before the events of the gospel are recorded, uh, so in about 20 AD, he had established Tiberias, which was a pagan city on the western shore of Galilee, right in kind of the area where the, the Jews predominantly lived. Uh, it was a pagan city there, and he made it the capital of his realm, Tiberias. Is now the capital of this whole country under Roman occupation. So the sea there where Tiberius was, the sea came to be associated not just with Gentiles generically, but also with that oppressive worldly government of the Roman Empire. And so often in the Old Testament uh, scriptures, in the Old Testament, the sea, the ocean, the sea, is a, um, a symbolic image of the nations, of all peoples, usually in their tumultuous, raging, chaotic enmity with God. And we'll talk more about that next week in the following related scene where the disciples are on the sea and Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. Uh, but to, suffice it to say at this point that the region where Jesus is now, the setting for this, uh, this episode in his life, <clears throat> It would indicate that this is probably a mixed crowd of Jews and Gentiles. A crowd this large in that area would have included both Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. It's an idea further hinted at when John mentions that, you know, the Passover is near, you know, the Feast of the Jews. So uh, it says in verse 2, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And that that sort of motive for a crowd forming and following Jesus is never good in the Gospels. Whenever it's pointed out, um, it's implied that the people really aren't interested in Jesus himself, in discovering who he is and what he has to say about himself and about God, as much as they're interested in what he can do for them. He can heal the sick. He can fix our circumstances. Right? Um, and it's, it's sort of, one, one commentator called it an aborted faith. To follow Jesus for these reasons um, probably the story is going to not turn out well with this crowd. So they just don't understand him. They don't accept him. They don't trust him, at least not yet. At least not yet. And uh, spoiler alert, I guess, at the very end of the chapter, uh, you've, you may have read it before, um, everybody leaves. Everybody leaves him except for the disciples. So Jesus went up on the mountain with his disciples. He sat down. The Lord meeting with his people on a mountain evokes images of the Exodus. The Exodus, which you can read about in the book called Exodus in the Old Testament, the second book of the, the Bible, when God met with Israel, his people, at Sinai on that mountain. Um, in the wilderness, having delivered them out of Egypt, having delivered them from Egyptian oppression, at the first Passover, which was commemorated annually with that feast that the Jews were about to observe, they came out to the mountain where God met with his people. And Jesus looks out from the mountain now at a veritable sea of people. 
uh, coming to him. And it probably reminds him, at least humanly speaking, it reminds him, it triggers a memory for him of, of when Israel was fed with manna at Sinai. So the idea pops into his head. Right? So he turns to Philip, who is from nearby Bethsaida. The, the, the gospel has already said, actually probably one of the closest towns to where they are right now. <clears throat> and he says, okay, local boy, what do you think? Down to the corner mart for bread for these people? You can imagine him with the twinkle in his eye, right? Because it, it says that he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Jesus is taking this somewhere, and he's starting to engage with Philip. Here's an interesting question to keep in mind. How could Philip have responded in a way that passed this test? Think about that. Maybe we'll come back to that. Imagine yourself in the same situation. What would you have said? Where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people, Jesus says. (laughs) Um, Philip answered him, 200 denarii. This is, uh, I think... Equivalent to eight months' wages for a regular job. Uh, That much bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Seems like an entirely, uh, um, like a a reasonable practical approach to the problem, actually. Philip is, he's just, okay, so we're supposed to feed all these people now. I don't have a plan. It doesn't seem like there could be a plan. Even if we were rich, we might not have enough money. <clears throat> His answer highlights the impossibility of the idea of feeding so many people, but it does seem like he doesn't quite understand the point of the question. Jesus is asking him this question to test him, and he hasn't understood that. Um, and another disciple, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he makes an observation that reinforces Philip's concrete assessment of the situation. Well, there's a boy here, uh, and in Greek that word is um, kind of not the normal word for boy. It's, uh, it's pedarion, which can be translated young man or young servant. Um, that might mean something in a minute, but <clears throat> there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? It's almost like Andrew mentions this to mock the whole idea. It's really absurd. It's ridiculous. It's laughable. This kind of thing is is what buddies turn into a good-natured joke, right? Yeah, Jesus, I mean, don't bother going out of the corner, Mark. We've got a happy meal right here, right? Seriously, this is not realistic. So Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there's much grass in the place. And this this is a detail that the other gospel writers mention also. um, And it, it, it is reminiscent of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. So these men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And the word men here is gender-specific. It's uh, sort of uniquely gender-specific in this uh, text here. And it's the word for males, not including women and children, which means there are probably two to three times as many people here in total. So that's a lot of people. Kids do the math. 5,000 times three. But it's interesting that the gospel writers, all, they all uh, have this, um, this episode in their gospels, and they all record the number of the men only. And that reminds one of the beginning of the book of Numbers. When, uh, when God's people, Israel, were about to set out from the mountain, about to set out f- from Sinai, to follow God into the promised land, 
and the Lord told Moses to take a census of the men who were able to go to war. So the picture materializing here is like the hosts, the great multitude, the armies of the Lord delivered from Egyptian oppression, ready to receive the promised land from their God and from their Savior as they, with military force, drive out the wicked Gentiles. Except, of course, that this is a mixed crowd that included the wicked Gentiles. So Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So at this point, one familiar with the Old Testament uh, can't help but seeing further connections. Almost an identical story with 2 Kings 4, which, uh, which Joe read in our Old Testament reading this morning. A man came bringing the man of God, bringing to the prophet, bringing to Elisha, the bread of the first fruits, the bread of the first fruits, sort of this... Uh, this bread that was supposed to be set aside as an offering to God. Twenty loaves of barley. That's specific. Barley bread. And fresh ears of grain in his sack. And, and Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant, and that word translated in the, the Greek Old Testament is pedarion. It's the same word that applies to the little boy who brought the barley loaves to, um, to Jesus. His servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Now again, it's interesting that Elisha, one of the things that really characterizes his ministry, throughout his ministry, he kept engaging with the Gentiles. It drove people crazy. It drove the Jews crazy. I mean, this story where where our Old Testament reading comes from, was bookended by him going to Gentiles to perform miraculous healings and helping these wicked Gentiles, helping these non-Jews. He kept engaging with them. He didn't limit himself in ministry to Israelites only, Elisha, but he loved and served and helped all kinds of people who needed it. All kinds. When people saw Jesus perform the same kind of miracle that the prophet Elijah had performed, they drew what should be a pretty obvious connection. Here's a prophet. Here's the prophet, they said. Here's the prophet, the one like Moses from Deuteronomy 18, where I mean, we looked at this last week a little bit, uh, where Moses um, prophesied that there would come another prophet just like him to deal with God's people who spoke on God's behalf and, uh, and did so as God fed his people manna in the wilderness but even though uh, they drew that connection, that Jesus is a prophet, they came to the wrong conclusion about that. Came to the wrong conclusion. They said, we need this guy to be in charge of our economy. We need this guy to be in, in charge of our whole country. Right? Just think of what he can do for us. Imagine the welfare system under Jesus. <laughs> Imagine it. Moses delivered us from Egypt. Jesus can deliver us from Rome. He can get rid of all the wicked people who are the real problem. All those people over there who are the real problem in our country. So perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, which is a 
pretty big deal when that means overthrowing the Roman Empire. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus wanted nothing to do with that agenda. Their instinctive agenda. Pretty natural agenda for people to come come to this conclusion, right? Just like he resisted the devil's temptation to power in the wilderness, he rejected the world's version of power that these people insisted on, the version that says that power is the ability to get what we want and to exalt ourselves over and against others, our enemies. That's the world's version of power. And that's the kind that Jesus wants to have nothing to do with. If you wrote Jesus' name in on your presidential election ballot, you, you probably seriously need to rethink your conception of Jesus and his kingdom. Leslie Newbegin said, Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to the captives, but he will not become the mascot for a people's movement of liberation. To say Jesus is king is true if the word king is wholly defined by the person of Jesus. It is false and blasphemous if Jesus is made instrumental to a definition of kingship derived from elsewhere. False and blasphemous to want to make Jesus this kind of king. So, so he walks away because the people had misunderstood him. They'd misunderstood. He points that out later. Even his own disciples misunderstood. In the other Gospels, it says they didn't understand about the, the loaves. Right? Makes it explicit. How should we understand him? How should we understand this miracle? What's happening here that is apparently easy for people to overlook and get Jesus totally wrong? What is it? And again, we'll look at that over the next several weeks as he explains quite a bit of it in his sermon. But let me just point out this one thing. This is the main takeaway. This is the deep point, I think, of the event. The thing that the whole world uh, overlooks and misinterprets. Um, Out of the Lord's thanksgiving comes the life of the whole world. Out of the Lord's thanksgiving comes the life of the whole world. You've got a couple things in the passage that remind us now of the table. Right? We're going to have the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. This all took place near the time of the Passover, and the last Passover was when Jesus instituted um, the Lord's Supper with his disciples. He enjoyed that meal, that last one, with his disciples and, and instituted and gave us instruction to do this uh, in remembrance of him. The Lord's Supper, also known as the Eucharist, the thanksgiving. That's what that word means, the Eucharist, the thanksgiving, because of the fact that at the Lord's Supper, Jesus gave thanks. And it's something that we see in the Lord's Supper, in the, in the meal that he's distributing here, um, in this miraculous feeding. Jesus gives thanks to his Father. Raise your hand if you did not overlook that. I I overlook that every time I read this passage. This passage is about his, his power and the miraculous feeding, right? This is, he gave thanks to his Father. That is to say, he has a relationship with the Father. He has a real one. He has a good relationship. God the Son has always had this relationship, but now, but now he's also a human being. And as a human being, 
He has this good relationship with God as his father. And it is unique. It is absolutely unique. This doesn't just tell us that we should pray before our meals. It's not recorded there just to give us the indicator that, yes, when you sit down as a family, you should always pray before a meal. Something unique is happening when Jesus gives thanks to his Father. His relationship to the Father is unlike any other human being's relationship to the Father. It is characterized by absolute, humble, happy gratitude. The Son is completely thankful and grateful to his Father. And it's because he's this one. Because, and it's as this one with a relationship, who has this relationship to the Father, that in his giving thanks to the Father is, is found our life. It may be hard for us to get our minds around. Our life is found in his right relationship to his Father. That's where our life is found. His receiving from the Father and responding to the Father the way it should be, that's our bread. That's our life. That's our spiritual life. That's our, our eternal life. He's the human who takes our humanity. He, he, he takes our humanity and he restores that humanity to life with God, the way it was always meant to be, because he's also the God who lives with God forever. And we find our life as we eat this bread. As we take in Jesus' own life with the Father, we take that in spiritually by faith. In his thanksgiving, in his divine relationship, we find more than bare sustenance, bare physical nutrition. In his thanksgiving, we find fullness to overflowing, more than enough eternal life. More than enough eternal life to share among multitudes. Out of his thanksgiving comes the life of the world. That's a phrase that he goes on to talk about in verse 33 later in the chapter. Out of his thanksgiving comes the life of the world. We're talking about the whole world. The whole world. Not just for the people of Israel. Not that limited nation state at that time. But for the Gentiles, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Big themes for John in his gospel and in Revelation. In Christ, there is more than enough spiritual food for all kinds of people, more than enough divine hospitality, more than enough space for immigrants and refugees, more than enough adoption papers, more than enough rooms in his house for new family members. In Christ, there's more than enough for all kinds of people. There were, there were 12 baskets of bread. All the gospel writers bring up that point. Uh, these, these bread fragments gra- gathered up after the crowd had eaten so that none of them may be, may be lost, Jesus says. These 12 baskets, a number that, that John sees as symbolic of the people of God, originally based on the 12 tribes of Israel, and yet now applied to the international community of the church. Not just the tribes of Israel. All people, all God's people from all peoples in the world, are, that's the whole people, the 12, uh, symbolizes this number. So this crowd at the sea is representative of the crowd, the, the multitude, same word, multitude, <clears throat> of John's heavenly vision in Revelation, the multitude that's made up from every nation, uh, that, uh, like the roar of many waters, praises God and his Christ for salvation.
And that's good news for Gentiles like you and me, probably every single one of us in this room. It would be a mistake to reduce, to reduce Jesus to uh, a free lunch, to reduce his salvation to some earthly comfort, uh, or even to a great example to get us out there working in the soup kitchen. It would be a mistake to reduce Jesus and his salvation to that. Those things are good. Food is good. To have food is good. To share food with the hungry, that's good. But Jesus is bigger than that. God welcomes you into his people, into his household, his family, his very life. He welcomes you all the way in. He does deliver you from oppression. Not Roman oppression, necessarily. Not Egyptian oppression. Not ultimately. He he delivers you from the oppression of sin, of your self-centeredness, and the spiritual death that comes from that. He does feed you always on the life of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. God feeds you always. And as his people, as his disciples, he sends you out with this bread. Just like he sent his disciples out. Hey, have them sit down and feed these people. He sends you out with this bread, the relationship of the Son to the Father. For our life. For our eternal life. To share that with the multitudes. To see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, multiply. As the Bible frequently puts it. To see the word of God multiply for salvation to the ends of the earth. How should Philip have responded to Jesus' question? Um, With eager anticipation, looking to Jesus to provide for the needs of the multitude. So let's look to Christ together and let's carry him and his relationship to God. Let's carry him to our neighbors and let's expect to see his grace more than sufficient. Let's expect to see his grace super abundant. There's more than enough for everyone, after all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us to see Jesus and to find our life in him. The fact that he has lived the perfect human life in relationship with you. Let us dwell on that. Let us not pass over that too quickly. Um, let us never get over that, actually. Let's help us to, um, to fix our eyes always on Christ and his life with you and the, the fact that you share this all with us as a free gift of your grace. Uh, it's something that we don't deserve, and uh, we marvel at your grace for sharing this life with us, the life of your Son for our life. And we pray that... Um, as you help us to more and more have an appropriate response of thanksgiving like that of your son, that, um, that we would also be interested and in, uh, more and more engaged with our neighbors, with our friends and family, even with our enemies, um, in ways that uh, we would seek to carry this bread, this bread of life, this bread from heaven, the life of the world, Jesus Christ himself, and share him with those who are hungry in um, ways deeper than just physical. We pray that you would help us uh, not just to be faithful to you, but to be eager in our anticipation of who you are and what you can do, that you will create uh, fullness to overflowing, that the gospel will multiply. We pray that you would help us to see that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.